verses. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please open them up once again to Romans chapter 13. This morning we're going to conclude the 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And as we close out chapter 13 this morning, these verses, verses 11 through 14, really pull a drawstring on all of chapters 12 and 13. That, that long list of exhortations, Paul draws to a close with these final four, four verses at the end of chapter 13. And so we're reminded how this began at the beginning of chapter 12. At the outset of chapter 12, in verses 1 and 2, Paul made an appeal to us. He said, I urge you therefore, brothers, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies, to offer all of who you are as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For this is your spiritual service of worship. This is your reasonable or logical service of worship. So he said, don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So for Paul, to those who have been... transformed by the gospel, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who, are, who have been saved by grace through faith, Paul to them makes an appeal. He urges them in light of the gospel, in light of the glorious truths that he has spent the better part of chapters 1 through 11 detailing. That is to be the foundation of his appeal. We're reminded in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, Paul told us that apart from Christ, that we are sinners, that we're hopelessly lost and deserving of eternal judgment and separation from God. But then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he explains to us that it is only by faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on our behalf that we can be justified, that is, declared righteous. Chapters 1 through 3 says we're not righteous, but chapters 4, 5, and 6 explain to us that we can be righteous, not by our own righteousness, but by faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness gets credited to us. It was great news. And then in chapters 7 and 8, he told us that not only that, but he's given us the Holy Spirit to guide us, to convict us of sin, to help us live differently, and also to be a deposit of what is to come, to, to remind us of the hope of life everlasting with God. That is to come. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul unpacked the sovereignty of God in salvation. That it is God's own sovereign will that, that he would choose to elect sinners like us to be saved. And so it is both Jew and Gentile alike who are chosen by God's sovereign grace according to the purpose of his will. And so Paul's appeal in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, his, his urging to us, his appeal to us is based on those glorious truths of the gospel. 
In light of those mercies, Paul says, I appeal to you to live your life as a sacrifice. To offer yourselves as a, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That kind of sacrifice is, is our reasonable act of worship, he says. It, it makes sense. It is a logical service of worship to live a life of sacrifice in light of the mercies of God. It only makes sense. In light of these mercies, Paul says, we who have been saved by God's grace, we ought not to be conformed to this world. Instead, we ought to be transformed. We're we're not to live a life that mirrors the world around us. Instead, we're to live a life that is transformed and, and renewed to live differently. That by testing, we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, these mercies of God as he's laid out in chapters 1 through 11, these mercies, this grace as he's explained it, they're to change us. We're, We're not to live the same way as we did before God saved us. That would be unreasonable. That that would be illogical. Instead, what is reasonable, what is logical, is for us to live lives that are transformed, to live lives that are where where we're day by day offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That is reasonable for the one who's been touched by the grace of God. So as we're now at the tail end of this description of what, what he's done in chapters 12 and 13 since then, he's given this description of, of this transformed life. Well, what is it to look like? And, and so now we're at the tail end of that. Paul's pulling a drawstring on this moral code, if you will. These 40-some-odd exhortations that we've had in chapters 12 through 13 of, of this different life we're to live. And so because we're at the tail end of that, I want to I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want you to sit there and, and, and listen as I kind of give a summary, just hit some of the highlights of what Paul has been telling us as he's describing this transformed life that we're to live because we've been touched by the grace of God in light of those mercies. He said in verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than, ought, than he ought to think, but to think of yourself with sober judgment. So if we're going to live this transformed life, it means we're to live a life of humility, putting others first, putting ourselves second. To be conformed to the world would be to live a prideful life, but, but Paul says you're to live differently. You're to live transformed. You're to live a life of humility. He goes on after that to talk about gifts in the church, that that each one of us is given a a certain gifting, and and we haven't all been gifted the same. And and so we're not to to desire someone else's gifting. We're not to desire their role of service. We're to serve the body of Christ in the way in which he has gifted us and prepared us for that. He goes on to say that we're to love God genuinely. We're to love without hypocrisy. There's to be no mixture of dissimulation here. We're to be genuine in our love. He says we're to love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing devotion. If there's to be any competition in the body of Christ, it's not to look like the world, but if there's to be any competition in the body of Christ, it is, it is the competition of how we love one another. We're to outdo one another, Paul says, in loving one another. How are you doing with some of this stuff? 
How are you doing at, at living this kind of transformed life? He goes on. He says that we're to rejoice in hope. We're to be patient in tribulation. He goes on to say we're to bless those who persecute you. That's not like the world. The world wants to get somebody back. But, but Paul says, listen, in this kingdom, if you've been touched by the grace of God, you need to live differently. I want you to bless those who have persecuted you. In fact, he goes on to say, I, I want you to love your enemies, and I don't want you to avenge yourself. Instead, when your enemy is hungry, I want you to feed them. When your enemy is thirsty, I want you to be the one to give them something to drink. He went on in the beginning of chapter 13 to say, as followers of Christ living in this world, as foreigners, you're still to submit yourselves to the governing authorities. And then last week we saw that we're to live in such a way as we understand that we have a debt of love that we owe to everybody around us, believer and unbeliever alike. That we're to love our neighbor in such a way that we understand that we owe them a debt of love. We're to, we're to owe no one anything except to love them. And so we get to the end of a list like that, and that's just a snapshot, right? There was like 40 exhortations in all of chapter 12 and the first two-thirds of chapter 13. We get to the end of a list like that, and it's a bit overwhelming, but we're reminded that God never asks us to do anything that Christ hasn't already done for us. He is both our example and our forerunner in all of these things. For example, when, when Paul exhorts us to love our enemies, we're reminded that before God intersected our lives with the gospel, we were his enemies. And yet Jesus chose to display his great love for us by dying for us. He set the example for us in loving our enemies. When Paul tells us that we should submit to the governing authorities over us, we know that Jesus, too, submitted to the governing authorities over him. He was led like a lamb before its shearers, and he was silent. He submitted to the governing authorities without even making a sound, without complaining a bit. He's our example in that. Everything that we're called to in chapters 12 through 13 is, is nothing more than what Christ has already done for us. But we're also reminded that God never asked anything of us that he, Jesus hasn't already also equipped us for. That in all of these things, all of these exhortations, we've been given the Spirit of Christ to help us, to be our aid that we can turn to for hope or strength or patience or whatever it is that we need. But now in our text this morning at the end of chapter 13, Paul lays out for us, how do we, how do we stay on track here? How do we stay the course in, in living this kind of transformed life? How do we stay focused on living differently? And what Paul will say is that we stay focused on living this kind of transformed life by remembering that we're to live in the light. Remember the light that we live in. Let's hear the word of the Lord together verses 11 through 14 of Romans chapter 13 God says to us through the apostle Paul besides this you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed the night is far gone the day is at hand 
So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. God, we ask that you'd meet with us this morning as we seek to unpack your word and understand what it means in our head and apply it to our lives so that you can be glorified. Help us not just to understand this intellectually, but Lord, I pray, Father, that you would reveal those parts of our lives that a passage like this calls out and tells us to open the door and let the light of Christ shine on that area of our lives. God, we pray that you do work in, in our lives, in our homes, in our families, even as we seek to understand this this morning. We pray in faith that you would glorify yourself by transforming us to look more like him. Do whatever you have to do this morning, Father. To make us look more like Jesus. For you deserve to, to be worshipped in that way. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a passage of scripture. As I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says it's one of the most glorious passages of scripture. And I think I've read that about 17 times in his commentary on Romans. He just loves this book. Seems like every time I turn around, he's saying that about a portion of scripture. But this is a passage of scripture where St. Augustine himself, upon hearing just those words preached, St. Augustine himself came to faith in Jesus Christ, converted at the preaching of those verses. What Paul does here is he offers us some motivation, some reminders to keep us on the path of living the transformed life. And he wants us to remember that we are living in the light. As believers in Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, we are living in the light. And he says this in three different ways. He says, first of all, we need to remember that we live in the light of the day of the Lord. We live in light of that. Secondly, we live in light of the ongoing battle that's raging around us. And thirdly, we live in the light of Christ. You'll notice there's nothing on the screen behind me, so you're writing there from what I'm speaking. There is no PowerPoint. We can have church without PowerPoint. So that's your outline, though. First, we need to live in light of the day of the Lord. He says at the beginning of verse 11, besides this, you know the time. And what he he means by that, when he says besides this, he, he means... I want you to do all this stuff that I told you in chapter 12 and 13. I want you to do all of this because you know the time. And so first of all, we need to check our calendar, if you will. We need to check our calendar. We need to to know what time it is. And then we need to live in light of that time. So what time is it? Well, Paul gives us three phrases here to describe the time. First of all, he says that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. The sleep that he refers to here is is the sleep of, of sin and death. 
He says, you have been saved from sin's past. This is what I've explained in chapters 1 through 11. Because of God's mercy and God's grace, he has given you the faith to trust in him. And so the penalty that you owe for your sin, that has been paid. That debt has already been paid in full, and it's been paid by Christ. So, So the sin debt that you owe has already been paid. It's been done away with. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation that we owed has been paid by Christ. Our sins were laid on his shoulders if we're in Christ. But we're also being saved from sin's power. You and I have been, been given the Holy Spirit to free us from the grip of sin's power in this life. So it, it no longer holds us captive like it once did. And so this sleep that he's talking about here that that we're to wake up from is the sleep of sin's grip to realize that that it doesn't hold us anymore. We're to wake up from that sleep. Paul says the hour has come for us to wake from that sleep. We're no longer in sin's grip. And so we ought to live as one who's awake, not as one who is asleep. We're to recognize the day. But he also tells us that there's the the promise, not only that we have been saved and are being saved, but that we will be saved. There's an element of future tense in our salvation that we will be saved from sin's presence. And so he says at the end of verse 11, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. How can he say that? Because as we mentioned in here before, there's three tenses to our salvation. There's a past tense that we have been saved by grace through faith. We've been saved from sin's penalty. It's been paid for in the cross, as we've said. There's a present tense to our salvation that we are being saved from the power of sin as he's sanctifying us and he's conforming us to the image of Christ. He is conforming a practical holiness in us. And so we are being saved. And so we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But there's a future tense to our salvation that one day we will be saved that our salvation will be fully consummated that our salvation will be fully complete and total as we are saved not just from sin's penalty and sin's power but from sin's very presence as he welcomes us home away from the very presence of sin and so he exhorts us here we're to live in light of that we're to we're to live as if that really is true that we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be completely saved one day. Why? Because we're closer to that day now than when we first believed, he said. It's closer than we first believed. You and I, every one of us, are closer to the day of our death today than we were yesterday. And we're closer to that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will welcome us to glory than when he first saved us. So Paul says, today is the day. Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So he tells us, wake up. The night's over. The day is at hand. So live in light of the fact that you are closer to glory than when you first believed. So we we live in light of the day of the Lord now, and we look forward with great anticipation to the day of the Lord to come. As some writers put it, we live in that already not yet time frame. That the kingdom of God is both now 
but it's also not yet. It's not yet fully consummated as it will be one day. And so the day of our salvation is today, in a sense, but the day of our salvation is also to come when it will be fully consummated and completed. It is still yet to come in that sense. It's getting closer, and so we're to, we're to live in light of that truth. We're excited and we're relieved at what Christ has already done for us in saving us past tense and present tense. But we look forward with great anticipation and with great expectation of that salvation being fully realized in the future. We think of it this way. A lot of us work by to-do lists, right? Um, we have a big project to do, and, and in order to accomplish that project, we divide it up into little bite-sized pieces, and we, we write those down on a, on a to-do list. And we begin making little check marks on our to-do list in order to accomplish all of our project, Right? Well, here's the, here's the beauty of this. The next thing on God's to-do list for our salvation is the return of Jesus Christ. That's the next thing. Everything else is done. We, we, we live in a day in which all the other boxes have been checked. There's only one box yet to be checked, and that is the return of Jesus Christ. And that is closer today than when we first believed. Only one more checkbox remains on God's to-do list for our salvation, and we need to live in light of the fact that it could happen at any moment. That's why it's called imminent. It could happen in any moment. Jesus could return and take us home. And, and Paul wants us to live this transformed life, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice in light of that truth, in light of the day of the Lord, with expectancy and with great anticipation, longing for, looking for, waiting for that day. Many of us this time of year, in the school calendar at least, we're looking forward in about a month to what? Spring break. Yes, you can say it out loud. It's going it's to happen unless the Lord returns before then. In about a month's time, we'll look forward to spring break. Many of you are going to go on vacation. You might go to the beach, and so you're planning, you're waiting, you're anticipating that. You're expecting that. You're preparing for that. And when you get back from spring break, then you immediately begin looking forward to what? The summer, right? You look forward to when school's out again for a longer period of time. And then towards the end of summer, maybe not quite as excited about it, but we're preparing for the beginning of school. We're preparing for fall, and then, and then as we get into fall, some earlier than others and some later than others, but at some point, we begin anticipating Christmas, right? Expectantly, we get excited about it, we're waiting for it, we begin making preparations, we begin buying presents, and we begin pulling down decorations from the attic and so forth, and we wait expectantly for that day. We're constantly living in light of the next big day. And the beauty is, for believers in Jesus Christ, the next big day is the return of Jesus Christ. His second coming, the perusia, the, 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 the great return and appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And it is imminent. It could happen at any moment. And so Paul wants us to live 
with great anticipation for that day and preparing for that day. Living our transformed lives in light of the fact that that is a reality with great anticipation and expectation for the return of the Lord. That is the time that we're in. And we are to know that time and remember that that is the time so that we will keep offering ourselves as living sacrifices for the glory of God while that is still the time. And so the question for us, the question for you and for me, for all of us to consider is, are we living in light of the day of the Lord? Are you, are you living your life in such a way that it is reflective of the fact that Jesus could return at any moment? If you knew that, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he could return at any moment, how might your life be different? What decisions are you making now that you might not be making? What is it about how you're living your life, how I'm living my life, that might change if, I, if I'm truly convinced that Jesus could return at any moment and wrap up this whole thing? We're to live in light of that because it could happen at any moment. Second, we're to live in the light of the ongoing battle. So first of all, we need to check our calendar. We need to check our calendar and make sure we're living in light of the day of the Lord. We know the time. Secondly, we're to check our clothes. We're to check our clothes and make sure that we're living in light of the ongoing battle that is raging around us. What we're wearing reveals something about what we think we're going to expect out of the day. What we, what we put on, the clothes that we wear, is, is somewhat representative of what we expect to encounter throughout that day. And Paul is telling us here in verses 12 and 13 that to take something off and put something on. He says, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So what we wear tells us something about what we expect to encounter throughout the day. We don't wear the same thing during the day as we wear at night. I notice none of you are wearing your pajamas to church today. We don't wear our pajamas during the daytime. We wear them at night if we wear pajamas. We don't wear the same thing when it's raining as when it's dry. We don't wear the same thing when it's 30 degrees out as when it's 68 degrees out. Unless you're David Bleth. And then if it's 20 degrees out, you're wearing short sleeves just like it is when it's 70. But for the rest of us, we don't wear the same thing. The clothing we wear reveals what we think we're up against. And God says here, clothe yourselves with the armor of light. But first he says, cast off the works of darkness. He's telling us here that we're clothed with our actions. We're clothed with our sins apart from Christ. That, that's, that's the works of darkness. Paul's words in these verses when he uses the words sleep and darkness and night, these are all representative of our former lives, our, our, our former lives before being transformed by the gospel, former lives in the grip of sin. And they're also representative of lives that are conformed to the pattern of the world. And, and Paul says that we're to recognize what kind of day it is. And because it is a day of battle, because there is a battle that is raging, we ought not to wear those clothes of darkness, those works of darkness. Instead, we are to 
put on the armor of light. What we wear tells us what we're going to expect that day, what we think we're going to encounter. If I'm going to go to the beach on spring break or on summer break, when I go out to the beach, I'm probably going to wear a bathing suit. I might wear a t-shirt. I might not. Probably wear a baseball cap, some sunglasses, and I'll bring some sunscreen with me. That's about it. Maybe a book, right? Maybe a little, uh, little beach chair to sit in. That's what I'm going to wear, and that's what I'm going to hold as I go to the beach on a sunny summer day in Florida. But if I go to the beach in 1944 in France, I'm not going to wear those things, am I? I'm not going to wear my bathing suit. I'm not going to carry a, 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 a sand pail. I'm not going to bring sunscreen with me. I'm going to wear my army fatigues, and I'm going to, I'm going to be holding my rifle, and I'm going to be carrying ammunition. What I'm wearing is indicative of what I think I'm going to encounter throughout the day. And Paul wants us to remember that to a very large extent, the Christian life is a battle. The Christian life is not only a battle, but it is always a battle. But our battle is not against flesh and blood, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6. And so our battle is not against our spouse. Our battle is not against our parents. Our battle is not against our teacher. Our battle is not against our boss. Our battle is not against our friend or even against the person that we might think is our enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy, your enemy and mine, is sin. The sin that remains in us and the sin that is in the world. And so we battle against sin. That's what we fight against. And the question is, are we clothed for that battle? Are we prepared for that battle? Are we walking around in these garments of darkness, as he says? Or am I daily putting on the armor of light? the armor of the gospel. We're reminded in that passage out of Ephesians 6 when Paul talks about putting on the full armor of God. He says we're to have the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. We're to have our feet shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. But it's interesting to note that as Paul introduces, introduces that section of Ephesians chapter 6, as he's talking about our, our spiritual armor that we're to put on, he, he begins that, he initiates that section with verse 10 of Ephesians 6, which says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So it's not about us bowing up and being stronger. It's about us surrendering to Christ who is in us and being strong in the strength of his might. But we're to recognize that it's a battle, and we're to wear the appropriate clothes for battle. So we're to cast off the works of darkness, or we, or we could say the clothes of darkness. And then in verse 13, Paul describes for us some of those clothes of darkness. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. In other words, it's daytime. So let's walk like it's daytime, not like it's night. Let us throw off our former life. Let us cast off our night clothes and dress properly 
as we should in the daytime, recognizing that it is the day. And so if we're going to live this transformed life, first of all, we need to check our calendar to make sure that we're living in light of the day of the Lord. We know the time, and we're living in light of that. Secondly, we need to check our clothes. We need to make sure that we're, we're living in light of the ongoing battle around us. And then thirdly, we need to check our closets. We need to check our closets and make sure that we're living in the light of Christ. We're to live in the light of Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 13. He says, we are to walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Why? Because those are things that happen at night, right? Those are things that happen in the darkness. Why are those things kept in the closet? Why are they relegated to darkness? I think it's because, at least in, for the first couple, couplet there. He he mentions three couplets, at least that first one, orgies and drunkenness. We all know intuitively, it's self-evident that they are works of darkness. I think it's interesting that that Paul starts with, with those because all of us, whether we've given in to that or not, all of us would say, amen, that is not something that a follower of Jesus Christ should be pursuing that's not honoring of Christ. Even if we say amen hypocritically, we know that. It's self-evident. Those are the sorts of things that, that become habitual sins or besetting sins or what our world might call addictions to various sins. But you know, none of us start out that way. None of us set out with the goal of losing control and giving ourselves to these besetting sins and becoming addicted to a particular sin. It usually, usually starts with something less habitual. Maybe like what he says here, sexual immorality or sensuality. Maybe it's an act. Maybe it's just kind of skirting the, the edges of sinful behavior. Our culture today is so saturated with sex and sexuality and pornography as to be unrecognizable to someone from 50 years ago. Completely unrecognizable. What was once relegated to adult bookstores and and then to adult video stores on the other side of town is now just a couple of clicks away. We would never think of having a library in our home with all kinds of sexually explicit books and pictures and videos and then tell little Junior, Junior, don't go in there and not lock the door. And yet... How many of us give these little instruments to children no matter what age? And they have access to much more than we could ever squeeze into a library in our home. And do we really think about restrictions and how we're going to protect them in that? But then Paul also includes these heart issues like quarreling and jealousy What are those? Quarreling is me thinking that I'm better than you, and jealousy is me thinking that I'm more deserving than you. James tells us where they come from. Listen to James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask, be- you, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Isn't it fascinating here that, that, that Paul talks about the, the works of darkness or the, the clothes of darkness, and, and it, and it spans the gambit between orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, and quarreling, and even jealousy and coveting. All of these are closets. They're they're closets. They're sins that reside in the closets of our lives and in our hearts. There was a Presbyterian minister who lived many years ago, he put out a book in the 70s or 80s, I forget which, I didn't see it until it was in the 80s, a little booklet called My Heart Christ's Home, the guy's name was Robert Boyd Munger, it was a little booklet, and it kind of tells the allegory of someone who comes to faith in Christ, and he describes that person's life as their heart, and that their heart has various homes. And so Christ comes to take residence in one's life, in one's home. And when he does that, he begins to renovate that home. He changes it. He doesn't just live there. He changes it. He transforms it like we've been describing. He, he transforms us by the renewing of, uh, of our mind. And so in that book, he, he describes how Jesus goes from room to room changing it and renovating those rooms. He goes into the kitchen and he, he takes the junk food out of the pantry shelves and he replaces it with good, healthy food. He goes into the library and he, and he removes the romance novels and the other junk that's there and he replaces them with the, with the books of Scripture, the Word of God. And, and then Jesus goes to the closet And he goes to open the closet, and the owner of the house says, oh, no, there's really no need to go in there. You're you're welcome to any of the other rooms, but but not that one. You're You're not invited there. I want you to be here, Jesus, and I want you to renovate me completely, but I'd like for you to stay out of that closet. But Jesus says, listen, when I came in, I told you that I would clean house. And I meant everything, even the closets. But for many of us, we're like the owner of that home. And we'd rather Jesus stay out of that part. There's an old English proverb that says, it is the duty of the host to make the guests feel at home, but it is the duty of the guests to remember that they are not. It's the duty of the host to make sure that the guest feels at home, but it's the duty of the guests to remember that they are not. Well, what do most of us say when we have guests over to our home? Make yourself at home, right? We say that. We don't really mean that. We don't really mean that. Because we don't want the guy to come in and take off his shirt and walk around in his underwear and sit on the couch and have Doritos, eat Doritos all over himself. I mean, not that that ever happens in my house, but I'm just saying. We don't really want them to make themselves at home. We really want them to remember that they are guests, 
How many of us treat Jesus like that? You know? We want him to live in our lives. We invite him in. Jesus, renovate me. Change me. Sanctify me. Conform me to the image of Christ. We want him to, to, to be there, but we really don't want him to take up full residence. We don't want him to have access to the closets. That's off limits. No need for Jesus in there. What are we doing? We're making provision for the flesh. But Paul says in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're not to make any provision for the flesh, which means we're to eliminate the closets. But we don't actually eliminate the closets. We just open the door. We open the door to the closets. And we let the light of Christ, we let the light of the gospel shine on that stuff. Those places where we're hiding sin. And he cleans. Sins are like mushrooms. What do mushrooms need to thrive? They need darkness and they need dirt. And they feed on that. They feed on the darkness and they feed on the dirt. And they thrive. But you expose them to light and they shrivel and die. Same with sin. Sins in our closets need to be exposed to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they cannot thrive there. Which means that we need to confess our sins to God. We don't have a mediator that we have to go through. Jesus Christ is our mediator. He has purchased access to the throne room of God. And so we confess things directly to God. But we also sometimes need to confess to one another. That's what James says we need to do. Confess your sins one to another. It's in the Bible. You know, none of us can live this life for the other person. This Christian life can't be, no one one can live it for you. But none of us are designed to live it alone. But in fact, as we've said in Romans and in elsewhere, that the body of Christ was designed to carry those burdens. I wasn't designed to carry all the burdens of all of the closets of my life. But the body of Christ was. And so if you find yourself in this place where there's, there's closets there that, that they need to be exposed to the light of the gospel, friend, whether it's in your base group or somewhere else, find one or two people that you can talk to that can carry this burden with you. Confess those sins to them. You say, it's scary. You know what's scarier? Not confessing. And letting those mushrooms continue to germinate over and over and over to the point where your conscience, as we saw last week, where your conscience is seared and you no longer feel the heaviness and the weight and the shame of your own sin. Talk to somebody. Confess those things. Confess them to God. Confess them to one another. That is, that is shining the light of the gospel on those closets. But it's not just 
about putting off the deeds of darkness. We're also to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we see the material that the armor of light that we're to put on is made of. The armor of light is constructed of, consists of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the example of a transformed life as we've seen. He equips us. He enables us to be able to do this because in Christ, he puts a new spirit in us. He makes us a new creation. He he frees us from the grip of sin, so now we can live transformed lives for him. But beyond that even, he is the one who is living his life through us. See, that's what he said in Romans 12.1, right? We're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We're to surrender daily to Christ who is living on us. That's why when Paul was talking about the armor, he says at the beginning of that, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and delivered himself up for me. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to stay focused and stay on track in in living the kind of transformed life that Paul has been laying out for us in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, if if we're going to stay on the path and stay focused in that, we need to check our calendar and make sure we're living in light of the day of the Lord and we know the time. We need to check our clothes and make sure that we're prepared for battle because it is an ongoing battle. We need to live in light of the fact there's a battle raging. And we also need to check our closets and make sure that we're living in the light of Christ, not in the darkness. Let's pray.